See everyone, feel free to have a seat. You know, you find yourself not wanting to ever pray like bad things for people or that it would be hard for them. Yet I, I kind of found myself hoping that everyone had a chance this last week to actually be in some sort of situation where you had to think about your conscience and how was it working, whether that was with a neighbor, a friend, a spouse, somewhere that you had to actually have, have a, a thought about, am I acting from a strong conscience or a weak conscience? You know, am I, am I finding myself in a position where I, I have laid down that choice before the Lord? And would you find that so often that these issues of conscience, these third order issues are really things that we can disagree on and still love and care for one another in? And that was something that I was praying for. You know, last week when we were in Romans 14, we had the chance to look at this idea of our conscience. And we talked about how this, that our conscience is our consciousness or our awareness or sense of what we believe is right or wrong. We talked about our conscience and Paul really in Romans 14, as we said last week, is giving us one big long application of what we do with our conscience when it disagrees with others. And these are the points that we saw. We saw that we are to welcome those who disagree with us, that those who have freedom of conscience must not look down on those who don't, that those whose conscience restricts them must not be judgmental towards those who have freedom, that each believer must be fully convinced of their position in their own conscience. We saw five, assume that others are partaking or refraining for the glory of God. Six, do not judge each other in these matters because we will all someday stand before the judgment seat of God. Seven, your freedom is correct, but don't let your freedom destroy the faith of a weak brother or sister. Number eight, disagreements about eating or drinking are not important in the kingdom of God. Building, up, building each other up in righteousness, peace, and joy is the important thing. Nine, if you have freedom, don't flaunt it. If you're strict, don't expect others to be strict like you. And 10, a person who lives according to their conscience is blessed. Now, Paul's first step was to encourage us to, to welcome, to draw in those who disagree with us. And that's the question, is our normal stance as believers, brothers and sisters, whether we're talking about in our body or with those that we know more broadly, to draw in those with whom we disagree with? I think that's harder. I mean, we all are people who like familiarity, whether it's familiarity of clothing or food or place or even opinion, especially opinion. We like familiar opinions that don't push us too hard. You know, Paul helpfully pointed out to us that there are strong positions with our conscience and weak positions, right? And the strong is usually aligning itself of giving freedom where God gives freedom in Scripture, and weak is oftentimes aligning itself by binding where Scripture doesn't bind us. You know, Paul's example of this idea was the freedom that the Gentiles had, not because they searched through Scripture, just by a default of their culture, to eat whatever they wanted to eat as far as meat goes. And then this idea that the Jewish people who really struggled with eating whatever they wanted to eat, largely because of a history of their diet being so closely tied to, to the observance of the law, he says that those who are strong in conscience should not look down on those who aren't in judgment. And those who are weak in conscience should not be judgmental of those who are strong. And most importantly, though, we talked about last week how Paul encourages us to push into those convictions. You know, for Paul, it's not the most important question whether you're strong or weak, though he obviously wants us to grow in our conscience and rightly aligning ourselves in strength towards what God would have for us, but rather how we act whether we're strong or weak. You know, last week we said that if we are all truly submitting our consciences before the Lord, 
If we're taking every decision that he puts before us and approaching him through prayer, through wise counsel with others, through listening to his Holy Spirit, something truly amazing can happen is that God can get glory through two exactly opposite decisions. Paul's example of to eat meat or not to eat meat, right? Or probably something more relevant to us, whether or not you watch a movie or don't watch a movie to the glory of God. Whether or not you private school, public school, or homeschool your children to the glory of God. Whether or not you vote for this party or that party for the glory of God. That is amazing. That is amazing that we have a God that is that broad and who has decided to relate through us through relationship, not through mere rules, that we might walk out his varied ways of grace and mercy in our lives in so many different ways, and he can receive the glory in all of them. That is incredible. And we find that if we each are handling our own conscience this way, presenting it before the Lord, trusting him to show us what we need to see, that we can walk around assuming that others are doing the same and assuming that they are doing it, that God might receive the glory. We can stop worrying about judging one another, knowing that God is the one who will judge and that he will judge each of us appropriately based upon the relationship we had with him and how we walked out our faith. You know, Paul says again and again that our freedom, a strong conscience, is correct, but that Christians are not about forcing their freedom on others. And we need to be very careful <clears throat> about the very real possibility that we could be part of the cause of someone wanting to walk away or stumble in their faith. Paul states that that's a very real possibility and concern. And he reminds us that third order issues like eating or drinking are not the important issues of the kingdom. Rather, It's being willing to give up our preference. What is important is righteousness, peace, joy, and the desire to build one another up. So Paul encourages us, if you have freedom, don't flaunt it. If you don't have freedom, but rather are strict, don't expect others to be as strict like you. Or as Paul said, the faith that you have, keep between yourself and God. That's usually the default position we should have. Not that we shouldn't discuss our thoughts with others, but rather, when it becomes contentious, be okay that God has called you to one thing and someone to something different. And all of this has behind it a desire that we would keep our conscience soft, sensitive, open to God's movement, because it's one of our best connections that we have to God through His Holy Spirit working in our hearts. We don't want to, to make it calloused. We want to be sensitive to whatever God is saying and what He's asking us. I mean, perhaps God is going to ask you to live out your life in a more restricted way in this next season. Are you okay that he might be calling you to that because that's what you need, even if you don't see others doing the same thing? Or if you have freedom in God right now, are you thankful for that freedom that he's given you in that particular arena? And would you just as thankfully lay it down again if he asked you to? Ultimately, as Paul says, a person who lives according to their conscience is blessed. We want to walk with this assurance that we have laid our life before the Lord and that we are making all of these kind of third level issue decisions to bring him glory and honor. Not because we're always going to do it perfectly. We won't. Our consciences will not always do the right thing. We will not always do things that will always be loving and kind. But the reality is, if we've sought the Lord and done our best, then guess what? Apologizing becomes much easier. 
Because I can say honestly to someone, I was trying to honor the Lord. I'm so sorry. I can see how that didn't love you well. Would you please forgive me? And we can rightly calibrate our conscience back to what the Lord would have for us because we've been holding it loosely before him and trusting him with it. What a sweet way that is to live in trust and knowledge that the Lord our God is guiding us, the unity that we would have with one another, in trusting one another to the Lord where our consciences lead on those types of issues. You know, in Romans 15, Paul is both going to continue his discussion that we had in Romans 14, but he's also going to expand it. In fact, I think he's expanding it with with the heart that he wants us to see that started way back in Romans 12. It's part of why these things matter to Paul. Here's where he starts in Romans 15.1. He says, We who are strong have an obligation to bear with the failings of the weak and not to please ourselves. Let each of us please his neighbor for his good to build him up. Paul, again, is not saying that we need to agree with weak consciences or positions. And he's not telling us that those who find freedom in the Lord should never exercise their freedom. But what he is telling us again and again is that we need to refrain from doing anything that will hurt someone else's faith that would cause them to stumble. And that's where the real question comes for us, right? Is what I'm doing causing someone to stumble in their faith? I think we oftentimes can look at the discussion that we're having with someone and know that the real problem is that they just don't like our opinion, so they want us to change it. But so often that gets blurry, Because if we're all willing to admit it, when we have a weak conscience, it's this idea of legalism so often creeping back into our relationship with God. It's this idea that we think we need to do something in particular, that we could be pleasing to God, that we might actually be saved, that he would love us when that's so not true. And it's that that path that God is constantly unraveling in all of our hearts that we need to be sensitive towards, loving towards and I'll admit, I very oftentimes feel like I have a short, a short, uh, a, a short ability to st- be steadfast with that. I so often want to say to the Lord, like, just, just, they just need to buck up. There's freedom here. Why are they trying to bind someone in, in an area that they're not bound in Scripture? And even though God and Scripture tell me that's the wrong heart, I still want to say, why? Why is that wrong? Don't we want people to mature, to grow up into the right things? I mean, Paul, Paul says stuff like that in 1 Corinthians 3. He talks about the Corinthians only being able to handle spiritual milk, and he kind of chides them and says, you should be able to handle meat by now, but you're not able to do it, so I'm still giving you milk again. But then we have Paul here in Romans 14 who tells me that if I take my freedom and try to put it on someone to do just as another law that doesn't come from faith, I'm actually encouraging them to sin. It has to be a balance between those two somehow. And that's where Paul goes next. He says, we who are strong have an obligation, hear that word, obligation, to bear with the failings of the weak and to not please ourselves. Let each of us please his neighbor for his good to build him up. For Christ did not please himself, but as it is written, the reproaches of those who reproached you fell on me. For whatever was written in former days was written for our instruction, though that through endurance and through the encouragement of scriptures, we might have hope. May the God of endurance and encouragement grant you to live in such harmony with one another in accord with Christ Jesus, so that together you may have one voice glorifying the God and the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Paul has a definite leaning on how we act in these things, right? This is the 11th point that Paul wants us to see, that we must follow the example of Christ who put others first. 
you know, though we see Jesus confront the Pharisees, though we see Jesus flip the tables with the money changers, though we see Jesus press in hard on his disciples to mature, by and large, what we see in Jesus, the God-man, is someone who gave up so many of his rights simply to be with us, to approach us, to draw near, that he might draw us back and that he might save us. Jesus coming to earth to save us means he left so much. This is what Paul says in Philippians 2. He says, have this mind among yourself, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on the cross. It's frankly not hard to call people to come and do the things that your conscience says is right. It's very hard to let go of the things that you actually have the freedom to do that you might actually love someone else. Remember what Paul said back in Romans 5? For one will scarcely die for a righteous person, though perhaps for a good person one would dare even to die. But God shows his love for us in this, that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. This is what Paul is pointing us towards in thinking about laying down our conscience towards our Lord who gave up everything, even his life, that he might draw us back into relationship with God. This is what Paul is wanting to expand for us in Romans 1 through 8. And this is why laying down our conscience for the sake of others can matter. You, you and I, we can become a very real embodiment of Jesus Christ to others, both for their salvation path and for their sanctification path, when we lay down our conscience. This is what Paul says was his mindset personally. In 1 Corinthians 9.19, he says this, he says, for though I am free from all, I have made myself a servant to all that I might win more of them. Let's unpack that, right? So if he says, for though I am free, I've been made myself a servant to all that I might win more of them. What he's really saying is this, I have the freedom to discipline myself, to be flexible for the sake of the gospel. You and I, we have freedom to discipline ourselves, to grow ourselves in our ability to be flexible for the sake of the gospel of Jesus Christ. This is where we begin to see the bigger picture that Paul is driving at. This is where we begin to see that conscience is ultimately a gospel mission issue. It's a gospel mission issue in our life. That's what Paul says here in Romans 15. He says that his goal is that you, all Christians, may with one voice glorify the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. You know, he unpacks what this gospel mission uh, that, that has to do with our conscience is here in Romans 15, 7. He says, therefore, welcome one another as Christ has welcomed you for the glory of God. For I tell you that Christ became a servant to the circumcised, to show God's truthfulness in order to confirm the promises given to the patriarchs and in order that the Gentiles might glorify God for his mercy. This is point 12 in his continuing discussion, clear from 14. He says, we bring God glory when we welcome others as Christ welcomed us. Right, verse 7 tells us that we are to love, to welcome, to submit, and to reach out to others. Why? Why does God want us to do that? Because it's exactly what Jesus did when he left heaven to become a Jew, to become a servant to the Jewish race and culture that the entire world might be saved. I mean, have you ever thought about how much Jesus left to come down to us from heaven? Perfect communion with the Father, 
like a place that had, had no sickness, no tiredness, no hunger, no wandering around and sleeping on the ground. And even more so, he became Jewish. The pre-incarnate son of God was not Jewish. Do you realize that? That the, the man, the son of man, the God-man chose to be Jewish. He was a Jewish boy who grew into a Jewish man. He chose to live under the law, to submit to it, to walk in righteousness in it, to fulfill what was necessary through prophecy in his righteous life, to love the Jewish people, and in doing so, to love the whole world that all might be saved, to fulfill his life as God always promised that he would as our Messiah. I think when we come to this issue of, of laying down our conscience, we think about how messy that can be to be in a group of people where there's differing opinions on these third level issues. And we think that that's going to be a problem. Yet when we look at scripture, Paul has two distinct places where he tells us that it's exactly through the mess that God is glorified and his grace and mercy is seen in amazing ways. The first is from 1 Corinthians 9.19 that we looked at before, but look at a few more verses with me. For although I am free from all, I have made myself a servant to all that I might win more of them. To the Jews, I became as a Jew in order to win Jews. To those under the law, I became as one under the law, though not being under the law, though not being myself under the law, that I might win those under the law. To those outside the law, I became as one outside the law, not being outside the law of God, but under the law of Christ, that I might win those outside of the law. To the weak, I became weak, that I might win the weak. I become all things to all people, that by all means I might save some. I do it all for the sake of the gospel that I may share with them in its blessing. All of it. Paul acting and living like a Jew when he's with Jewish people. Paul acting like a Gentile and living like them when he was with the Gentiles. Laying down his freedoms to walk with the weak. Picking up his freedoms again to walk with the strong. All of it for Jews and Gentiles together for the glory of God that the gospel might be seen as the most important and most magnificent thing to all peoples. So Paul believes that the mess of different consciences, this weak and strong, is exactly where gospel mission flourishes. It's exactly what his gospel people, God's gospel people need in our lives. And that's what Paul is saying is going on in Romans 14 through 15 as well. This, this mixing, this amalgamation of different consciences, Jew and Gentile together, truly is where God's mercy and grace and glory seems largest. You know, when God is saving a varied people by his very large grace. And Paul wants to see all these people, Jews and Gentiles, with different third-level consciences together, praising and worshiping God. He wants to see what was prophesied come true as he looks back to Old Testament passages like he does again and again. And he says, as it is written, therefore I will praise you among the Gentiles and sing to your name. And again it is said, rejoice, O Gentiles, with his people. And again, praise the Lord, all you Gentiles, and let all the peoples extol him. And again, Isaiah says, the root of Jesse will come. Even he who arises to rule the Gentiles in him will the Gentiles hope. May the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace and believing so that by the power of the Holy Spirit, you may abound in hope. Friends, is this what you hope our church would look like? Do you believe that it should be a mess, as it were, of different third order conscience decisions? 
Is it what we're praying for? It's the environment that we need to train us for our gospel mission. Do you believe this statement? That church is a cross-cultural lab for missions training. We pray that that's true ethnically, but we also pray that it's true in consciences. We have to learn to deal with different people, different consciences, the mess of it. If you saw that mess of different consciences as purposeful, part of God's plan for his body and his church, would you find it less frustrating? Could you find yourself bearing with your friends, your brothers and sisters in your church body who have differing consciences than you in a much more steadfast and loving way? If you saw that as God's purpose in your life? I mean, how can we expect that we can share the gospel of Jesus Christ with a world who has vastly different consciences than us on many, many different things if we can't even get along with one another. You know, we tell the world that the most important thing that they need is to know that their sin has been dealt with through the glory of Jesus Christ, through his righteous life, his death on the cross, his resurrection in power, and his pouring out of his Holy Spirit that we might walk back in relationship with God rightly again. Yet we act like so many other issues, third-order conscience issues, are way more important with our actions, our words, and the time that we spend on them. I mean, I would argue this. I would argue that our problem with witnessing in America today has less to do with our culture's lack of desire to engage with the message of Christ and more to do with the off-putting nature of the church's desire to reinforce our arrogant freedoms or binding weaknesses through our church's cultures. Our problem with witnessing in America today has less to do with our culture's lack of desire to engage with the message of Christ and more to do with the off-putting nature of the church's desire to reinforce our arrogant freedoms or binding weaknesses through our church's cultures. Said simply, we are more concerned that people agree with us on third-order issues of conscience than we care about them hearing the gospel of Jesus Christ. That's going to be our challenge, Rev. It's going to be our challenge. Our challenge is, how do we continue to press into God through his word, through studying, through wisdom, together with one another, through the work of his Holy Spirit in our lives, and calibrate our consciences to more and more strength, more and more freedom in God, while at the same time creating an environment where people who aren't there yet feel welcome, loved, and cared for. That's the challenge. You know, it's, it, it's part of what we are being called to do daily here. And this will take a lot of work and humility. It makes sense then that, that where Paul goes next in, in, in this chapter is, is thinking about his own mission. You know, if what Paul has been laying the groundwork for is to make sure that we do our mission well, that we know the gospel of Jesus Christ well from Romans 1 through 8. If we put great trust in the sovereignty of God in Romans 9 through 11, if we realize that our engagement with one another, with those in authority over us, means that we owe them an obligation of love because of what Christ has done for us, even to the extent of being willing to lay down the freedoms that we have been given in Romans 14 and 15, it makes sense that Paul looks back in his life and starts to think how that has worked itself out in his mission. Paul's not ashamed to say, look at what I've done. Follow me as much as he has followed Christ. And that's where he starts in this first section here in, in Romans 15 through 14, 14 through 19. He says, I myself am satisfied with you, my brothers and sisters, that you yourselves are full of goodness, filled with all knowledge and able to instruct one another. But on some points, I've written to you very boldly by way of reminder because of the grace given to me by God 
given me by God to be a minister of Christ Jesus to the Gentiles in the priestly service of the gospel of God, so that the offering of the Gentiles may be acceptable, sanctified by the Holy Spirit. In Christ Jesus, then, I have reason to be proud of my work for God. For I not venture to speak of anything except what Christ has accomplished through me to bring the Gentiles to obedience by word and deed, by the power of signs and wonders, by the power of the Spirit of God. We see here that Paul is being careful and loving to the Romans. Uh, he sees them both as, as part of his overall mission to the Gentiles, but they're also part of the mission that he praises in the future for him. He's laying groundwork for them that they might know what is most important in his heart and that they might be ready to receive it in person when he comes. We also see that Paul is looking back over his entire, his entire ministry with the Gentiles. You know, it's a ministry that gave him boldness to write to the Romans because that's who he's been called to minister to. And it's clear that Paul here wants to see Christ magnified over all, that he doesn't want them to see anything other than the power of God working through him that everyone might glory in Jesus Christ. You know, Paul then clearly lays out the, the ministry that he's been on in these next pieces. He says, so that from Jerusalem and all the way around Illyricum, I fulfilled the ministry of the gospel of Christ, and thus I make it my ambition to preach the gospel, not where Christ has already been named, lest I build on someone else's foundation. But as it is written, those who have never been told of him will see, and those who have never heard will understand. <clears throat> we see here the breadth of Paul's ministry from Jerusalem and the birth of Christianity all the way to Illyricum, which for him was almost the northernmost direction he could have gone in the Roman Empire, up near Bosnia and Kosovo and Croatia, that part of the old Soviet bloc. Paul says that he's gone around this area, not meaning a circle around it, but woven his way around and through these places, sharing the gospel with many different people groups. And this is what he says to the Romans. He says, this is the reason why I have, been, I have so often been hindered from coming to you. He's been busy. He's been filling up this, this total uh, eastern portion of the Roman Empire with the ministry of the gospel. But now, since I have no longer any room for work in these regions, and since I have longed for many years to come to you, I hope to see you in passing as I go to Spain, the far western side, and to be helped on my journey there by you, once I have enjoyed your company for a while. At present, however, I'm going to Jerusalem, bringing aid to the saints, for Macedonia and Achaia have been pleased to make some contribution for the poor among the saints at Jerusalem, for they are pleased to do it, and indeed they owe it to them. For if the Gentiles have come to share in their spiritual blessings, they ought also to be of service to them in material blessings. When therefore I have completed this and have delivered to them what has been collected, I will leave for Spain by way of you. I know that when I come to you, I will come in the fullness of the blessing of Christ. You know, Paul is by no means implying that he has spoken to every single person in these regions. Rather, Paul is saying that he feels he's completed his ministry here because he's established God-honoring, Christ-loving churches that he believes will endure can continue to pass on the beauty of the gospel that they love to future generations so he can move on. <clears throat> he feels that he has sufficiently set this area's area up. And for Paul, that stage of his ministry was in his past. His present now is to head to Jerusalem to bring them money, and then in his future is to go to Spain and on the way visit Rome, saying, I know that when I come to you, I will come in the fullness of the blessing of Christ. You know, Paul, as he does in many of his letters, is starting his conclusion here. And in doing so, he's sharing where he's been, what he's planning on doing in the future, what his current ministry is. Yet, as he also does in many other letters, he, he frames his conclusion 
with some of his main goals from the letter itself. You know, here we can see how Paul's mission and ministry of spreading the gospel is tied directly to the gospel that he shared in Romans 1 through 8, the sovereign God that he knows and loves and serves in Romans 9 through 11, the Gentile and Jews that he believes he owes love because of the love that God showed him in Romans 12 through 13, and the deference to lay down his rights that undergirds the gospel message that he sees as a direct result of the ways Christ laid down his life for us in Romans 14 through 15. As we move to our conclusion this morning, I want to bring you back to two things that we said already. One, church is a cross-cultural lab for missions training. But I want to pair that with this statement. We are more concerned that people agree with us on third-order issues of conscience than we care about them hearing the gospel of Jesus Christ. If you believe that those two might be true, you can see the problems that we can often run into into our gatherings and in our body. You know, we are often not using our training grounds rightly for the glory of God, nor for our own goodness and preparation for the mission that he's given us in this world. You know, we rarely make having a church that is broad in its conscience a goal. Yet maybe we should, because consequently we aren't prepared to go on mission very well. To engage a a world that is full of many varying consciences much more difficult than the differences we have. We are only inviting believers and unbelievers into a lopsided expression of the kingdom of God, and we're likely missing many who would like to be drawn to faith if it weren't for some of our barriers. And I believe one of the ways that we can engage in changing that culture in our body is very simple yet very powerful. It's through prayer. Not just a general, generic kind of prayer. Look what Paul asks for from the Romans. He says, I appeal to you, brothers and sisters, by our Lord Jesus Christ and by the love of the Spirit, to strive together with me in your prayers to God on my behalf, that I may be delivered from the unbelievers in Judea, and that my service for Jerusalem may be acceptable to the saints, so that by God's will I may come to you with joy and be refreshed in your company. May the God of peace be with you all. Amen. Prayer is not just the expression of our hopes and desires. It's also a guide for our hopes and desires. It's very hard to belittle or besmirch someone whom you're praying actively that their life would show glory to God in every decision that they make. To pray for one another in their very real ways. Look what Paul asked for them to pray for. To pray for his current ministry. To pray for his next steps. To pray that he gets to Spain, which he doesn't. Paul, in his conscience, thinks he should get all the way to Spain, yet he gets arrested, taken to Rome, and is killed. Yet he's asked them to join him in what he thinks God has for him next in very specific ways. And that's my question to us this morning. Are we truly praying for one another, our brothers and sisters in Christ in this room, our brothers and sisters in Christ that you know throughout this great nation and other nations, in very specific ways as they believe their conscience is leading before the Lord? Are you praying that however God is moving in their life, that he might receive the glory? That they might be doing it fully to his glory? We are all going to leave here today and go out and make tons of decisions in our life, whether it's decisions with our friends, our neighbors, spouses, our work, And all those decisions, so many of those decisions come into third level conscience issues. What if we truly started praying for each other? Not just these big prayers of God, just help everyone, 
but rather a specific prayer for what each friend needs, what they feel God is calling on their conscience right now, and praying alongside them, not in judgment of their conscience, but that through however they walk that out, that God would get the glory, that they would walk fully with him. Part of our job then is to pray for the mission, the gospel-laden mission that God has given each and every one of us and in the different ways that he calls us to do it in our conscience. That we might parent rightly before the Lord, that we might vote rightly before the Lord, and that that might look different and that I can come alongside everyone and enjoy that. This morning, I want to encourage the band to come up here, but as they come up, I want to encourage you, before we take communion, to just stop and take some time of prayer. Pray for those around you, even if you don't know their name. Pray for those you know in your life who are believers, and pray that God would be honored through their conscience, even if it looks vastly different than yours. Pray for the ways, in fact, that you might know that that person has a vastly different choices than yours and pray that through that way of living that God might be honored. Again, we're not talking first level who God is. We're not talking second level sins, all these different ideas. We're talking third level. I want to encourage you to pray for one another this morning. Pray for those that you see. Pray for those you don't see. Lift them up before the Lord in the ways that God is working in their lives through their conscience that he might be glorified. After a little bit of time, the band's going to play over while we're praying. And then when they start to sing, feel free to grab communion. This morning, I pray as you prepare your hearts that you are drawn again, like last week, towards the beauty of the unity that we have in Jesus Christ. This God who is so big, who's drawn us all together. The elements are in the back and on the side. Feel free to hold them and we'll take them together after the song. Would you pray with me? Oh, Father God, you are such a big God. A God who through relationship has drawn us to yourself, Jew and Gentile, people of conscience, who you are asking to stay soft to your leading, knowing at times, Lord, that you might call each of us to restrictions where others aren't restricted, to freedom where friends might not find freedom. But Lord God, you say that in our relationship with you, you can be honored and glorified through it all. Lord God, would it be true? Would we find ourselves knowing better where the lines between first and second and third order issues begin and end, that we might joyfully partner with one another around third order issues, that we might find ourselves challenged, and Lord God, that we might find that our gospel mission is strengthened because of the people that we surround ourselves with, knowing that you, God, have loved them. You have called them beloved son and daughter. Lord God, would we call them beloved brother and sister? Would we welcome them in? Would we care for them? And Lord God, would we challenge one another in our consciences to to know you and love you fully in whatever decision we make? Lord God, we want to pray this morning to lift up those around us and the ways that you are working in their lives.